Well, I just returned from the Bethlehem Conference for Pastors in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and it was a refreshing time for me to get away, to get alone with God, to pray. I thought I was going to be able to nap and sleep, but that didn't quite happen because I was still on California time when I went to bed, and I had to get up at Minnesota time, and those two hours make a big difference. But I came back refreshed spiritually and exhausted physically, and that's typically how it works when you go to these pastors' conferences. But I had a wonderful time, and the theme of this year's conference was this, joy set before us, perseverance and hope in the day of opposition. It was a very fitting theme because of the times and the culture that we live in. Hostility to the gospel, hostility to Christians is only increasing. So the conference theme and the messages were very fitting for the church. And if you're interested in listening to the message, I highly encourage you to do so. You no doubt will face opposition in your life because... You are a Christian. So I would encourage you to listen to these messages or download them at desiringgod.org, especially the two messages by D.A. Carson. Don Carson uh, had a message titled, The Woman from Kentucky, which is about Kim Davis, the, the clerk that didn't want to hand out the um, same-sex marriage certificates. And he talked about some of the tensions that we live with and in your workplace, the tension that's going to be there. And it, where do you, is there a line of compromise and it's different for everyone? And, and what about voting when it comes to voting for someone? Is it a sin to not vote for someone because you don't like them, the person that's in your party? But if you don't vote for that person, then the other person who's worse in the other party might get elected, so is it a sin not to vote? And so all these tensions that we live in, in the world, and the hostility, and the opposition that we face, really all of the message kind of address some of these themes. I highly encourage you to go listen to it. And then John Piper did two messages just kind of walking through First Peter and the suffering that Christians experience in this world. So take advantage of that. The messages were fitting for me and fitting for us as a church because we're working our way through the book of Hebrews. And one of the themes of the book of Hebrews is enduring present suffering and opposition as we await our future glory with Jesus. In fact, the conference theme came from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, which says this, Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross. He endured incredible suffering throughout his whole life and then culminating at the cross. And he did it for the joy that was set before him. And the joy that he looked to was the truth that he would redeem a people from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue. And he would bring them into his glory where they would be able to glorify and enjoy the triune God 
forever, for all of eternity. That was the joy that was before him, bringing his sons and daughters into his glory. It was, as Preston Sprinkle says, the joy of being reconciled and reunited with his image-bearing masterpieces turned enemies who deserve wrath, not forgiveness, justice, not grace. And that is what our passage that we will be looking at today will remind us of. What we'll see today is this, Jesus plus suffering equals everything. Jesus plus suffering on the cross equals everything. Now, I tweaked a book title to get that big idea. Several years ago, Tolly and Chivijan wrote an excellent book called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And it's all about how the Christian life is about what Jesus has done for us. So I tweaked the title of his book for our big idea today. So when I say that Jesus plus suffering equals everything, I mean that the crux of the Christian life is centered around and wrapped up in the truth that Jesus suffered for us on the cross, in our place, for our sins, in order to bring us to God. And that means that if we don't have a suffering Savior, then we don't get salvation. So Jesus, suffering on the cross, in our place, for our sins, it's everything, it's everything for us. And that's what we'll see in our passage today. We're just going to cover just one verse today, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, because this one verse has so much meat on it, it's going to take at least one sermon to pick all of it off the bone and then be digested. In fact, we'll have to come back next week for seconds on this verse. But this one verse is what we're going to look at today, and as we look at it, a few questions should come to your mind. So let's look at the verse and let's see what questions surface. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So a few questions come to my mind when I read Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10. Question number 1, why was it fitting that Jesus would be made perfect through suffering? Why was it fitting? Why was it a fitting thing that Jesus should suffer for us? Question number 2, what does it mean that Jesus was made perfect through suffering? What does that even mean? Jesus was made perfect through suffering? Huh? Well, I'm not going to answer that question today. So come back next week, and Lord willing, I'll answer it. Come back next week, and we'll look at what it means that Jesus was made perfect through his sufferings. Question number three that comes to my mind, what does the, why does the preacher of Hebrews give these descriptors of God in verse 10? Why does he tell us that all things exist for God and that God is bringing many sons to glory? And then question number four, what is the glory 
that God is bringing us into. I hope to answer three of those four questions today. One of those questions will have to wait until next week to get answered. So let's tackle question number three first. Why does the preacher of Hebrews give these descriptors of God in verse 10? Why does he tell us that all things are for God and by God, they exist for God? And why does he tell us then that God is bringing many sons to glory? Why does the preacher of Hebrews tell us these things about God the Father? Why does he tell us that all things exist for and by God the Father? And why does he tell us that God the Father is bringing many sons to glory? Why does he tell us this? He could have easily just jumped right into the part about Jesus being made perfect through his sufferings. He could have said it this way. For it was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He could have said that, but he didn't do it. He could have even said this, for it was fitting that he, the only wise God, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Or he could have said, for it was fitting that he, the creator of the ends of the earth, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Or he could have said, for it was fitting that he, the immortal, invisible God, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering, but he didn't. So why did the Spirit of God inspire him to tell us these things about God the Father before he tells us that Jesus was made perfect through suffering? Why did he say, for whom and by whom all things exist? And why did he say, in bringing many sons to glory? Why does he tell us that all things exist for God's glory? And that God is bringing many sons into his glory right before he tells us that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Here's why. Here's why it's fitting that the preacher of Hebrews tells us this. Because this has been God's plan all along. And that is the answer to question number one. Why was it fitting that Jesus would be made perfect through suffering? Why was it fitting that Jesus should suffer? It was fitting because this was God's eternal plan. Theologians call it the covenant of redemption. How God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit covenanted together to redeem a people out of every nation, race, and tribe and bring them into his glory. It was fitting because this has been God's eternal plan. God's eternal plan was always to send his son Jesus to suffer and to die for his elect people. And it was also God's eternal plan that he would be glorified as he brought many sons into that glory. God's eternal plan was that he would be glorified as his redeemed people exalted in his son. And this is why we exist to get caught up in and to get swept away by the love that God the Father has for his son Jesus and that Jesus has for his Father in and through the Spirit. This is why we exist. It's why God made us. It's why he saved us. That he would be glorified and that we would be satisfied with all that God the Father is for us in his son Jesus. And if you don't believe me, then maybe you'll believe a guy who wore knickers and wore a powdered wig. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. I don't normally take my cues from guys who wear powdered wigs and knickers, but I listen to this guy. He said this, the end of creation is that the creation might glorify God. 
Now, what is glorifying God but a rejoicing at that glory he has displayed? The happiness of the creature consists in rejoicing in God, by which also God is magnified and exalted. So what Jonathan Edwards is saying is that the end or the purpose for which God created the world is twofold. One, God created the world so that his glory would be magnified in the universe. And two, God created the world so that Christ's redeemed people from all times and all nations would rejoice in God above all things. So as the writer of Hebrews says in verse 10, all things exist by God and for God. So God created the world so that he would be glorified and his people would be satisfied in him. And those two reasons work together. God is glorified when we are satisfied in him. This is the reason why God made the world. So that we would glorify God as we treasure his son Jesus above all things. So please understand that there's no tension here between God's glory and our satisfaction, our enjoyment, our happiness. It is as we are most satisfied in Jesus above all things that God is most glorified. Here's how Jonathan Edwards said it in another place. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, by both the understanding and by the heart. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory and that it might be received both by the mind and heart. He that testifies his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also his approbation of it And his delight in it. So what Edwards is saying is that it's one thing to see God's glory and to acknowledge it. But it's something altogether different to see God's glory and to delight in it. It's one thing to say, I believe that Jesus is infinitely glorious. I believe he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's one thing to say that. It's a whole other thing to say, I believe Jesus is infinitely glorious. I believe he's the King of kings. I believe he's the Lord of lords, and he is my treasure. As Psalm 43 says, he is my exceeding joy. It's one thing to tip your hat to the truth that Jesus is infinitely glorious. It's a whole other thing to tip your hat to the fact that Jesus is infinitely glorious and then say, he satisfies me above all things. There's a big difference between the two. So God is glorified when we see his glory and rejoice in it. Or as John Piper has famously said, and he's just plagiarizing Jonathan Edwards and making Jonathan Edwards easier to understand because Edwards uses words like approbation. John Piper has famously said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so now the question becomes, what glorifies God And what should most satisfy us? What is it about God that should satisfy us? What is it about Jesus that we would look at him and see him as our treasure? What is it about Jesus that we would look at him and say and sing as we just sang, Jesus is better? That's the title to our series in Hebrews, Jesus is better. What is it about Jesus that we would see him and say, Jesus is better? 
The answer is this. It's the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus is the summit of all of God's revelation. The the summit of all of of his communication. the, The summit of all of the communication of his glory to his creatures. The cross of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus that Hebrews 2.10 is talking about. The giving of his life for his elect people. That is the focal point of history and eternity. And that's why Jesus plus suffering equals everything. Jesus living and, and suffering throughout his entire life and then suffering and dying for us. That is the focal point of our lives And it's the focal point of all redemptive history. So in eternity past, time was moving forward to this moment, to Jesus dying for us. And we look back on that event as the focal point of the Christian life. And for all of eternity, we will be singing about and delighting in the fact that Jesus died for us. As Revelation 5 says over and over again, we worship the Lamb who was slain. So the cross is the focal point of all time and all history and all of eternity. The summit of the cosmos, the summit of the entire universe is the cross where Jesus suffered for us. Where do you experience the inseparable love of God that's described in Romans chapter 8? You experience it at the cross. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 8? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where do you experience God's love, his inseparable love? It's at the cross. And notice that this love is past tense. Did you you see that? It's in the past. Paul doesn't say, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors to him who loves us. It's past tense. Now, Paul is not saying that God only loved us in the past and that he doesn't love us now. He's not saying that at all because he tells us that nothing can separate us from God's love. So yes, God loves us in the present. So why does, God, why does Paul speak of God's love in the past tense here? The reason why Paul speaks of God's love in the past tense is because this is the summit of God's love. The highest point of God's love is not what he's doing now. The highest point, the apex, the pinnacle, the summit of God's love is what he did for us in the past at the cross when Jesus suffered for us. On the cross, in our place, for our sins to bring us to God. That means then that to experience God's love in the present, you have to climb the summit of his love in the past at the cross. Do you want to see and feel God's love right now? Then get to the cross. Get to the cross because that is where you see the love of God on full display and at full volume. Or to borrow a phrase from the movie Spinal Tap, at the cross, God turned the amplifier of his love up to 11. And it is because of the cross and through the cross 
that God is bringing many sons to glory. Look at verse 10 again of Hebrews chapter 2. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Hebrews 2 is a pregnant summary of the gospel. It captures God's glory. It captures God's exaltation in bringing his adopted children into his glory through the suffering of his son. It's a pregnant summary of the gospel. So when you read Hebrews 2 chapter 10 in reverse, when you start at the end, which we're not accustomed to, when you start at the end and you work your way back through the verse to the beginning, then you understand the end for which God created the world. It's through the suffering of Jesus that many sons are brought to glory for the glory of God. That's it. Hebrews 2.10 in reverse reveals the end for which God created the world. Through the suffering of Jesus, many sons are brought to glory For the glory of God. God receives all the glory as his adopted sons experience salvation through the suffering of his son. And don't miss this one important truth here. It's God who is bringing us into his glory. Don't miss that because the Hebrews were missing that. The Hebrews wanted to earn their way to God. They, wanted to, they said, we can do the law. We want to come back under the law. We can perform it. We can do it. We want to earn our way to God. And if they could earn their way to God, they couldn't. But if they could earn their way to God, then who gets the glory? They do through their efforts. They lost sight of the fact that it's God who is bringing many sons to glory. All things, even our journey to God, our journey to glory, all things exist for the glory of God's name. And God gets the glory on our journey when we focus on Jesus and his suffering on the cross, which was the pinnacle of redemptive history. The cross is the eternal plan of God. It brings us into God's family and it exalts and magnifies his glory. It's everything. It is everything. It's the apex, the pinnacle of redemptive history. You have to have a suffering Jesus or the gospel is not good news. Jesus has to be just like us and that will become the point later on in the chapter. He has to become like us without sin and he has to suffer for us. That's why I say that Jesus plus suffering equals everything. Because if he did not suffer for us, then he could not bring us into glory. And that leads us to our last question. Question number four. What is the glory that God is bringing us into? What is the glory that God is bringing us, his sons and daughters, his adopted sons and daughters into? What is that glory? Well, Jesus told us that in John 17 when he was praying to God the Father, he told us that that glory was his love. John 17 verses 22 through 26, Jesus says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. 
Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Isn't that amazing? Christian, God the Father loves you just as much as he loves his son, Jesus. Jesus never sinned. You sin all the time. You sinned when you walked in the church today probably and thought, I can't believe she's wearing that. Or, who took the last of the honey? I was making tea. My point is that we sin all the time. Jesus never sinned. And because we're in union with him, God the Father loves us just like he loves his own son who has never sinned. Is not the glory that Jesus received from God and that he gave to the disciples nothing but sharing in God the Father's eternal love for his son? The glory that we are being brought into is the love that exists between God the Father and his son Jesus. We get to spend eternity getting caught up in that love. That's glory. Here's what Martin Luther said about Jesus' words in John 17, 24. We should let this utterance be our soul's pillow and bed of down, and with joyful heart resort thereunto when the sweet hour of rest is at hand. Jesus promised that we will be brought into God's eternal love should be the pillow that our soul rests upon. It should be the soft, comfortable bed that makes our soul relax and rest upon. God the Father is bringing us into the delight that he has in his son Jesus because now we are sons. We have that delight and that glory now, but we will experience in its fullness on that day when there will be no sin to mess it up, no sin for us to doubt God's love for us. He's bringing us into the delight that he has for his own son. He's bringing his sons and daughters into that glory Because we are sons through him, we will experience that delight as his sons because we are in union with his son. This is the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived the life that God's law required of you and he died the death that God's law says you deserve because of your sin. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus' performance for you is what guarantees your eternal inheritance. The good news of the gospel is that the eternal Son of God has secured the inheritance of all of God's adopted sons and daughters. The good news of the gospel is that God is bringing many sons to glory and it's all of his grace and you can rest in that. You can lay your head down on the gospel and rest But how many Christians still live like what they do determines their eternal inheritance? How many Christians think that they can earn God's favor and love by wearing the so-called masks of good works, Bible reading, prayer, service, all the while trying to earn his love through their performance? Isn't this what we do? We miss a couple days of Bible reading. We're like, oh my God, God must hate me. He's that fickle. 
that he would hate me because I didn't read the Bible one day. Don't we think that? Maybe you don't. I messed up. That's me. Maybe you don't ever doubt his love, but I do. So we try to earn his love. We try to earn his favor. If I pray enough, serve enough, do enough, read enough, give enough, then God will find favor with me. Then I'll earn his love. Then I'll get a sticker from him. I just want a sticker from him. All the while trying to earn his love through our performance. This is exactly what the Hebrews were struggling with. They said, let's go back under the law. Let's obey the law so that we can curry God's favor. They needed to be reminded that it was God the Father who was bringing many sons to his glory. Martin Luther said, Those who try to achieve the status of sons and heirs by the righteousness of the law or by their own righteousness are slaves who will never receive the inheritance even though they work themselves to death with their great effort. This is exactly what the Hebrews were struggling with. They didn't want God the Father to bring them to glory as sons through his son Jesus. They wanted to earn their way. They wanted to earn their inheritance. They were forgetting that Jesus secured their eternal inheritance, and we do that too. We don't have to wear masks and try to earn our future inheritance of being with Jesus on the new earth. We don't have to wear these masks and try to earn God's favor, earn God's blessing, because Jesus has secured all of that for us. Listen, Christian, there's no way you will ever be written out of God's will. No last-minute surprises. No one is cutting us out of the will. It's not you standing before the God, and he's like, oh, you really messed up that one time. It's done. We had to write you out of the will. You're nothing here for you. It's not going to happen. No need to try to manipulate God to make sure we get our inheritance. Our inheritance, it's already ours because of Jesus. God is bringing many sons and daughters to his glory because of Jesus, because Jesus suffered for us on the cross in our place for our sins. So understand this. God's will is to keep you in his will, if you will, in spite of your iron will. God's will is to keep you in his will. His will, if you will, you know what I mean, in spite of your iron will. You can try all you want, you can exert all the energy in the world, have never-ending willpower, but that will not get you into heaven. That will not secure your inheritance. That will not keep your inheritance intact. That will not bring you into glory. Jesus has already done that for you, Christian. You are in his will. You will get your inheritance because of Jesus, because it's God's will to keep you in his will, if you will, in spite of your iron will. The hard truth of the matter is that even after we become his children, after we are adopted into his family, we do tons, we do thousands, we do millions of things that should cause God to cut us out of the will and to keep us from our inheritance. We do millions of things even after we become Christians that should get us written out of God's will, written right out of the inheritance. But God graciously takes us home. He brings us home to glory. Even when we cut up along the way. Think of it this way. God is bringing many sons to glory. He's driving the car. We're, we're in the back seat. 
And we want to drive because we want control, right? We're control freaks. But we can't because God is bringing us to glory. He's the driver. So what do we do? We sit in the back seat and we're cutting up the whole way. We fight with each other. We want our own way. We bicker with one another. We fight. Scoot over. Quit touching me. Stop looking at me. Dad, she touched me. Dad, he hit me. Dad, dad, dad. We're just children. Children of the king, but children nonetheless. The Bible never calls us the adults of God. Never calls us the young adults of God, the seniors of God, the mature ones of God. It calls us children because that's who we are, and because that's who we are, that's why we act the way we act. We're we're just kids. We're just big kids. We got paychecks, we have more money than our kids, but we're just kids. We're just children sitting in the back seat of the car that dad is driving, and we fight the whole way home. We fight the whole way home to glory. We're adults, but we act like children. And if you don't believe me, what did you and your spouse fight about this week? Was it putting the lid back on the toothpaste? Was it, I told you a thousand times, the toilet paper roll goes over, not under behind. What is it that, what petty thing did you and your spouse fight about this week? And how did you fight about that petty thing? See, we're just big kids and we're being brought to glory by God the Father. How he keeps putting up with us, I don't know. Actually, I do know. Here's the answer. Jesus plus suffering equals everything. It's because of Jesus. God puts up with us because of Jesus. God puts up with his bickering backseat children because of Jesus. Because we are in union with his son. Because we are adopted. Truly, we are image bearers turned enemies turned sons and daughters who are being brought to glory through the suffering of God's Son. So think about what Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 is screaming at you this morning. Christian, if you have turned from your sins and by faith you're trusting in Jesus alone, and you're adopted, the papers are signed, the inheritance is yours. God the Father loves you. The gospel is all about God adopting rebellious enemies into his family as sons. That's the gospel. That's Hebrews chapter 2 in a nutshell. And that's why J.I. Packer said this. Were I asked to focus the New Testament message in three words, my proposal would be adoption through propitiation. And I do not expect ever to meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. The gospel can be summed up in those three words, adoption through propitiation. We are adopted through propitiation. What is propitiation? It's a very big theological word that you should know and love. Propitiation is Jesus on the cross turning God's wrath away from us, 
onto himself. When Jesus took the curse of the law upon himself, for us on the cross, the holy wrath of God was removed from us because of our sin. It was turned away from us and placed squarely on the shoulders of Jesus. That's what propitiation means. Turning away God's wrath and anger at our sin. So we are adopted through propitiation, through Jesus turning God's wrath away from us. That's the gospel. That's Hebrews 2.10, adoption through propitiation. You'll never meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. J.I. Packer also said this about being adopted as God's sons. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. That justification, by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance for the future, that it is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel is not in question. So what J.I. Packer is saying is that He's not denying that justification is fundamental. Having God say, you're forgiven, I give you the righteousness of my son. He's saying, that is fundamental. He says, I'm not denying the fundamentality of justification. It's important, but he says adoption is higher. He continues, justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us, guilt gnaws at us, making us feel restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have not peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. And as justification is the primary blessing, so it is the fundamental blessing in the sense that everything else in our salvation assumes it and rests upon it, adoption included. So he's saying justification is it's fundamental. If you're not justified by faith, by God's grace, by trusting this in Jesus, you don't get anything else. It's fundamental. But then he continues... But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as a judge. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. Now, if you don't get anything else that I've said or Packer says, get this. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. It's one thing to be made right with God the judge, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is so much greater. Listen, it would not be glory. It would not be heaven if God said, come on in, you're justified, you're forgiven, you're blameless in my eyes. I've 
given you the righteousness of my son Jesus. But I don't want to see you ever again. That would not be heaven. That would not be glory. What's glorious about the gospel is that God says all of those things. And then he says, come here, son. Come here, daughter. I want to love you. So many of us stop at justification, as important as it is. And as John Calvin says, it is the hinge of theology and doctrine of the church. You've got to have it. But how many of us just stop there at justification and say, I'm forgiven, I'm righteous and blameless in his eyes, and that's it. Many of us don't live like sons, adopted sons, do we? We don't functionally live like sons and daughters who are on their way to glory. Many of us live functionally as if we were orphans or as if we were slaves trying to earn. We live like we're not adopted sons and daughters. What did Jesus say in John 14, 18? I will not leave you as orphans. Christian, you are no longer a slave with no rights. And you are not an orphan. You're a son, an heir. So as we close, let's just get real, okay? Let me ask you this morning. Today, are you acting like a scared orphan or a secure son? Do you functionally exist as an orphan who has no father or as a son who has a father who's bringing you to glory through the suffering of his son? Here's what it looks like. You function like an orphan when you worry and doubt God's love for you. The son or daughter rests in their father's never-ending love for his child. Orphans worry. Sons trust. Orphans worry all the time. What's going to happen? What's going to work out? Orphans worry. Sons trust that they have a father and he's good. You function like an orphan when your relationship with God is seen through the lens of success and failure. See, the son or daughter rests in the truth that they are absolutely loved, absolutely forgiven, absolutely cherished by God. But the orphan, the orphan focuses on their failures. Sons rest in Jesus' righteousness. Orphans are constantly thinking about how they've messed up, they've dropped the ball. And the son is resting in the imputed righteousness of Jesus. The orphan is defensive when accused of error or weakness. The son or daughter is open to criticism because they rest in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Orphans can't handle criticism. Orphans can't handle criticism. Don't tell me I'm doing something wrong. Don't tell me I'm, I'm believing something wrong. Don't tell me that my candidate is wacko. I'm not saying they all are. Orphans can't handle criticism. Sons and daughters have God's favor, so they don't fear what people think of them, even if the criticism is true. The orphan is a competent analyst of other people's sins and failures, other people's weaknesses. 
The orphan is a competent analyst of other people's failures and sins. You're doing this wrong. You're interpreting that Bible verse wrong. You're voting for the wrong candidate. Orphans are obsessed with other people's sins, other people's failures, other people's weaknesses. The son or daughter is able to freely confess their faults to other people because they know that no matter what, they are loved by their heavenly father. Orphans focus on other people's sins. You know you're functionally existing as an orphan when you are obsessing over other people's sins. Sons freely confess their own their own mess, their own junk, their own garbage. Are you acting like a scared orphan or a secure son today? A secure son who's being brought to glory by God the Father through the suffering of his son. Do you functionally exist as an orphan or a son? Do you really believe that you are a son or a daughter of the king. Do you really believe that God stands with arms wide open, allowing you free access to his presence? Or do you view God as this fickle, cranky father with arms crossed and a frown on his face? Christian, you can rest on the pillow. You can rest on the bed of down of the gospel this morning, all because of Jesus. Jesus plus suffering equals everything. Jesus plus suffering equals justification. Jesus plus suffering equals forgiveness. Jesus plus suffering equals adoption. Jesus plus suffering equals resurrection. Jesus plus suffering equals no condemnation. Jesus plus suffering equals it is finished. Jesus plus suffering, equals everything. Let's pray. Father, the gospel is such good news, it almost seems too good to be true. I can't believe it, but I believe it. It's too good to be true. I can't believe it, God but I believe it. What amazing love. How fitting for you to send your son to suffer for us on the cross for our sins to bring us to you. As the spirit rubs the gospel down into the pores of our soul, may you get great glory as we are satisfied with all that you are for us in your son Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.